Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. You know, it's hard to believe, but this is the 25th episode of the AA Recovery Interviews podcast, and my 25th interview guest is particularly special. Before I introduce him, I want to remind listeners about the purpose of this podcast and its mission of protecting both anonymity and AA's 12 traditions. The AA Recovery Interviews podcast explores the lives of people who have recovered from alcoholism through Alcoholics Anonymous. In each one-on-one interview, my guests share their experience, strength, and hope through a lively discussion of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. We also explore the rest of the story by looking at their lives during the years and even decades since their sobriety date. We discuss how AA has helped them stay sober through good times and bad times, all while enriching their lives and the lives of those they love. The AA Recovery Interviews podcast respects and protects the anonymity of each guest using their first name and last initial only. There are no videos or pictures. We comply with all formal and informal tenets of the AA program, including the AA name, anonymity, references to the program, the 12 traditions, and AA World Service policies. The podcast is offered free to all listeners, and neither I nor my guests receive any monetary consideration. No advertising is allowed on either the podcast or the website. I personally pay for all production and distribution costs in grateful service to AA for what it has so freely given me. In addition, my anonymous guests and I speak for ourselves only, not for Alcoholics Anonymous at large. We share only our personal experiences with AA Recovery. As members of AA, our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. So my guest today is Gordon R., a man who got sober in AA before Neil Armstrong put his foot on the surface of the moon. By age 28, in the spring of 1969, Gordon's rapid descent into full-blown alcoholism had taken him from a burgeoning career as a globe-trotting engineer to panhandling on the streets of New York City. Fortunately, when he found the program, the old-timers who had been sober since the very earliest days of AA took Gordon under their care and helped him build the solid foundation on which his program stands strong and thrives more than a half a century later. Gordon's story of sobriety is one of both triumph and tragedy, of a path well-traveled thanks to his consistent involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous. Gordon's rich experiences in working an active program, which includes frequent meetings, is both instructive and inspirational to all who wonder about the possibility of actually achieving long-term sobriety. Today's show with Gordon R. is about 90 minutes long, with the best audio quality that Zoom was able to provide on interview day. Now, whether you listen to it straight through or in segments, my hope is that you'll find what you've been waiting to hear. With that, I welcome to AA Recovery Interviews my good friend and AA brother, Gordon R. My name is Gordon, and I'm a powerless over alcohol. Hi, Gordon. Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews. It means a lot to me that you would take some time today to do this. You're a good friend, so I didn't mind doing it. Well, I appreciate that. I'm curious. A lot of people say I'm alcoholic, and you say you're powerless over alcohol. Obviously, that's a personal choice, but when did you start doing that? Well, when I came in, anonymity was a lot more important than it is now. Uh All right. And I went to a couple men's Mm groups. 
that dated back to the 40s, mm -hmm. some of the members. And that's the way they introduced themselves. Really? Uh, because alcoholic had a stigma. Uh-huh. And powerless over alcohol, nobody knew what it meant. <laughs> yeah. And that's the way I started, and that's the way it's been ever since. You know, every once in a while, I'll say, I'm Gordon, I'm an alcoholic. It's not, I'm not denying that. Right. But, but the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And so I don't even qualify for membership. Uh -huh. I had a desire to stay stopped. I could, I could stop anytime I wanted. Right. And stay stopped, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's semantics. Don't get me wrong. No, I, I know, and I know there are folks in the meetings that you and I go to. There's one man in particular who says, uh, "My name is so and so, and I have a desire to not drink." Which is the same thing I'm saying. Right. right? People who are not alcoholics wanting to get sober usually have the desire. So you've been sober amongst all of my friends. You uh, probably have the longest term sobriety of anybody I know. How many years now? 52, just over 52. So what's your sobriety day? Uh, March the 13th, 1969. So before Neil Armstrong took that step on the moon, you were getting sober. Uh, oh, yeah. I know I watched that sober. So, I mean. Yeah. So the moon landing was in July of 1969. Okay. The war in Vietnam was still on. Yes. A lot of uh, things going on around the country. Why did you pick that time to get sober? And what was going on in your life when you decided to get sober? I had been sober, and, and I don't mean sober, I had been dry without the program uh -huh. from December 1967 to December 1968. Uh -huh. Full year, almost to the hour. All right. And I was a periodic drunk before that. Mm -hmm. But uh, when I, my, my ex-wife said, Gordon, you've been such a good boy. I've I mean, I'm sure you've heard me say that in the story. Right? And she said it just that way. You've been such a good boy. I think you deserve a drink tonight huh. on Christmas Eve. Wow. All right. 30 some odd days later, I'm on Skid Row because now I couldn't stop. All right. Now I was a daily drinker, you know, and as such. The real thing that contributed to what I consider my bottom mm -hmm. was that on the 12th of March, I got drunk downtown. Mm -hmm. I stole a car. Mm -hmm. I drove up to where my wife's apartment was now because I'd been kicked down. Mm -hmm. I went in. I broke in. I beat her up, oh. which is the first time I'd ever hit a woman. Mm -hmm. And then... I tried to throw my daughter out of a six-story window. Oh. And she was a little over a year old oh, at the time. Oh, my God. I woke up. Now, I didn't know any of this. I just knew whatever I had done. Because I'm in a blackout, right? right? Uh -huh. I was a blackout drinker. And I knew that I had done something terrible. Because I was in the, her apartment. Uh -huh. The apartment door was open. The car I stole was actually my car. Oh, uh, uh. All right, it was parked downtown, not because of me, but because that's where they parked it. My father-in-law used it to go back and forth to work. Mm -hmm. I went out, and the car is sitting in the second lane mm -hmm. off of the curb, mm -hmm. cattywampus with the doors open. Now, how long <laughs> I had been up there, I don't know. Holy cow. But there wasn't anything in the car, uh, no, no tickets that I know of. Mm-hmm. And I just knew that that was the end. All of these things that are related to you were told to me later. Wow. 
I don't know if you're a blackout drinker at all, but a blackout, you come out and you know you've done something wrong. You just don't know what it is. Yeah, it's not like regular passing out where you lose memory and you don't necessarily feel guilty at that point. Blackout, you do. Blackout, you do. And you're wondering what happened, who you've hurt. You know, and I knew where I was. Yeah. So that, and my wife wasn't there, my daughter wasn't there. Uh huh. And certain things came back, tell me that I was in trouble. Sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, I drank. Uh, it's not that I couldn't stop, but I just didn't care anymore, you know, because, I mean, I, I, uh, I was down on Skid Row. I was panhandling, and when I was panhandling, I wasn't drunk, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, such. So it's not like I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stay stopped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I drank every day now, you know, every night. I panhandle in the morning enough to pay my expenses for the next day instead of two mm-hmm. liters of uh, Thunderbird, uh-huh. enough to pay the, uh, I, I was living in a flop house with uh-huh. 39 other guys. They were all drinking too, or drugging. Uh, I, I did not have a drug problem. Yeah. I just never took Which it. Which is fortunate after what, what happened to so many of your compatriots. So this was in New York City. What part of New York were you doing all this in? The flop house was on 11th Avenue and 48th or 49th Street. Yeah. And my panhandle down on from Broadway over to about maybe 8th Avenue where oh, yeah. the Port Authority terminal started. My thing yeah. was I was all beat up and raggedy and everything else. And and I tell people, I just got mugged last night, and I don't have a wallet. I don't have a... And they give me 5 or $10, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the part of town to get that kind of money, wasn't it? Right. So never let it be said that a panhandler doesn't have a good plan in mind, huh? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'll never say that. And not only that, not, panhandling is not a good con artist. So. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, really, that's really something. How old were you when you were doing that? 28. 28. Okay. So what what kind of stuff was going on in your early life that led you up to that kind of behavior in your mid-20s? I was an alcoholic from the time I took my first drink. Uh-huh. I, I took my first drink on the day before my 16th birthday. Mm-hmm. And I set up a party. Both my parents were alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So I set up a big party at my house and had all my friends over uh, not really friends. Mm-hmm. I had all the people I knew over. Mm-hmm. I had very few friends. And uh, I I even set up two beers on the windowsill so they'd be there in the morning when I got mm-hmm. up. And I had my first blackout. I had mm-hmm. my first brush with the law. I had, uh, well, I don't know if I want to say yeah. it. I yeah. lost my virginity. I had a blackout for sure because most of that yeah, was yeah. told to uh-huh. me later again. And, and I knew all about that yeah. because my parents were the same way. They were mm-hmm. both blackout drinkers. So from the time I started, I just assumed that there was no other way. That's what you did when you drank because I had both. I had, I had two good good alcoholics to teach me. What, what drinking was all about. So instead of looking at their behavior while they were drinking and getting drunk and being repulsed by it or deciding you'd never wanted to do that yourself, you were actually drawn to it and used them as the models for your drinking. Uh, 
I, uh, I had skipped two grades growing up, so I was always way behind right. with my classmates, all right? So I was right. shy, mm-hmm. I was introverted, I was scared to death mm-hmm. that I was going to hell. You know, I'm a recovering mm-hmm. Southern, Southern Baptist, and oh, yeah. I know you've heard that story about the swimming pool or the train. Which one is that? When we moved to New Orleans from Brownsville, mm-hmm. uh, I was about 11 years old, I believe, mm-hmm. and we had to get rebaptized, and we had to get the church that I went to, the Baptist church, it was out of Metairie, mm-hmm. and and was right off of the you know Lake Pontchartrain. Sure. Uh-huh. So we had to go full immersion, and uh-huh. the young lady in front of me was a couple of years older than I was, of course, because I was in advanced grade, uh-huh. right? I mean, and such. And when she walked out of that water, there was not a holy thought in my head. <laughs> not one. <laughs> and I then went and listened to the minister preach on that if you thought it, it was as much of a sin as if you did oh, it. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> You know, now here I am, scared to death. I'm in a new environment. I am out of out of my place anyway, mm-hmm. and I hear that I'm going to hell anyway. And so I live with that. After that, that was you know, I knew I was going to hell. Mm-hmm. How many years did it take you to finally get over that notion? Uh, I don't know that I have yet. Really? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean. I've got a higher power that doesn't have anything to do with what I think. Right. But there are still times when I think something, I think, oh, God, here I am. I'm going to hell anyway. Mm. You know, that that was uh, ingrained into me. I mean, that was preached for until I left the Baptist church when I was about 16. Hmm. So this was down in New Orleans that all that was happening? This was New Orleans when that happened, when that yeah, happened. but that was shortly after. We only lived in New Orleans a couple of years. I actually met her. So you were growing up with two alcoholic parents. What were things like in your home when you were a small kid? And do you have siblings? I have two brothers. One's three years younger than me and one's six years younger than me. Uh-huh. I have a sister. And then when I was 16, I got another kid sister. Uh-huh. And that's what made me run away from home. Huh. Because I was the one that took care of the kids. You were. Yeah, I did the cooking. I did the house cleaning. You know, I did all those things because I was responsible. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't drinking until I turned 16. So, you know, I had all that energy, that guilty energy that forces you to do these things. Yeah. Was it expected by your parents that you do those things? Uh, Yeah. Those were jobs that they assigned to you. No, I can't say they assigned to me. What I can say is they didn't get done unless I did them. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, the kids didn't get fed. Yeah. The place didn't get clean. Because my mother was, my father was a periodic drunk. He was a pilot for Pan American, by the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Wow. And so he knew how to stop drinking because I never saw him go in drunk. Mm-hmm. But I've seen him and a lot of other Pan Am pilots because we were a a close-knit, I won't say family, but Mm -hmm. a close-knit combination of people. 
But my mother, you never knew. Mm -hmm. And she'd come home one time and she'd cook the nails. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a very good cook, mm -hmm. but she could cook the nails. Mm -hmm. The next month she was drunk and she was out chasing some guy or something, you know. So it was totally chaotic. Yeah. So from a very early age, you were the responsible one. You were the one that was kind of holding things together for the kiddos in the family while your parents were doing what they were doing. So at 16, you said you got a kid sister, and that's when you left home? She was born when I was 15. And I wasn't going to change diapers and raise another one. I just, and I was, I was a junior at that time. So. Wow. Where did you go when you, when you left home? I ran away to New Jersey. That's a good place to run away to. <laughs> I am. <laughs> and, and I had a friend there that I had met years before, and we had stayed in contact. Mm -hmm. uh, I ran away, and I had a car mm -hmm. uh, because I turned 16, and at 16 in New York, you could drive. Right. And in 17 in New Jersey, by the way. And so, you know, I was always worrying about getting stopped. Uh-huh and having uh, New York plates. Mm -hmm. But his mother, I was sleeping in the car. Mm -hmm. I was working. I went back to school. I forged my record. Mm -hmm. And I was fairly smart, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and then uh, I was sleeping in the car. And the town that I was there was in Mountain Lakes. Right. They had several areas that were back off where they – Girls and the guys would go parking, uh -huh. and I'd go off there and sleep, sleep in the car. And she caught me, Mrs. Uh, Katie caught me, and she said, you can't do that, Gordon. Well, I'm not going home. I guess I'll just run away. And she said, no, I'll rent you our garage apartment, huh. and you live here and go to school and work. And Carl and you are good friends, and he says you're honest, hmm. and I'm take his word. Well, she was wrong about me being honest. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't steal from people that I didn't I, that I like. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know that yeah. goes, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. I got number one in I don't think they called them the SATs. I don't know what they called them in those days. And I scored a perfect score on them wow. and got got a full ride into college. A full ride? Full ride. Tuition, books, and board. And travel back and forth. To, uh, Mrs. Katie signed my papers as, as a responsible adult. Mm -hmm. She was sticking her, well, her name, her reputation, and everything else by letting me do that. But mm -hmm. So I went back, I went out to school and I couldn't stop drinking. Hmm. Uh, I got running with a bunch of Korean vets. Mm -hmm. This was this was 57, you know, and all the vets were back, and they knew how to stop and go back and study, and I didn't know how to do it. Wow. So I flunked out after about uh, six months. Six months, wow. Was asked to leave. Uh-huh. And lost that whole thing. So where did you, where did you go next? I went back to New Jersey, and I went back to the garage apartment. Uh, I worked, and I did some, I guess what we call them junior junior colleges here. Uh -huh. I think they call them the same yeah. thing there. I went and picked up some credits, mm -hmm. you know, just mainly because I could pick up girls. That <laughs> way. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. 
And then I got going with a, a, a very beautiful young lady. She was a couple of years older than me, uh-huh. but by this time I'm six foot three and 190 pounds, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm mm-hmm. a really decent looking guy. Mm-hmm. And her father hated me. Why? Because I was not responsible. Oh. She she told them several things about me. You know, <laughs> that's like, great. I was a bad. No, no, it's not. I wasn't responsible. I was a bad influence. Bad influence. Yeah, yeah. That's worse. <laughs> so and he was also the president of the draft board. Oh no! <laughs> I think I can see so where this I, story is headed, Gordon. <laughs> you, you got that idea? <laughs> So in 1959, I got drafted. 59. You you got drafted into what branch of the service? The Army. Yeah. Was that a two-year or three-year? Uh... That was a two-year, which turned out to be three years, by the way. Did it? Yeah. Or two years, nine months, three days, 11 hours, and 45 minutes. Well, you remember that. I guess that you've been going over that for years in your mind, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That was pure hell. In what way? Uh, well, I made uh, corporal four times and sergeant three. Every time I made sergeant, I'd get drunk. In fact, actually, the third time I made sergeant, the CO said, look, Gordon, I'm just going to pen these on because you're not going to keep them on. Let's <laughs> not bother to sew them on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. What an illustrious career. Where were you uh, stationed? I started out at Fort, uh, in Fort Dix. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, because that's where I was drafted. And then I went down to Fort Rucker, Alabama to aviation school. Mm-hmm. Then I went up to Connecticut for helicopter school. They grouped together a detachment to go. Half of us went to Anchorage, and half of us went to Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And I went to Fairbanks. Now, the fact that your father was a pilot, did that influence your desire to be around helicopters? When I knew I was getting drafted, I went down to see the Air Force to see if I couldn't get in the Air Force school because I had a fairly high GED, they call them, you know. It put my IQ up about 145 or 150. Wow. yeah, smart guy. And they wanted me, Yeah. but even then I had bad ears. Huh. So I couldn't, fly, I couldn't qualify for flight school. And they said, well, come on in. We'll make you a crew chief in the uh, Air Force. And I said, that's four years. Ooh, yeah. And I said, no, thank you. And so I went ahead and got drafted. Yeah, and I was going to go two years. That's all I was going to go. You say it turned out to be closer to three. What what happened at two years? Three months before, four months, remember, they had a Berlin crisis. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. All right. And so everybody with my, my MOS helicopters got extended for a year. Uh-huh. And interesting enough, I had just gotten discharged nine months later or ten months later because I got an early out. Uh huh. An early out of an extension, remember? Right. And I was back in college, and they tried to draft me for the for the Cuban crisis, mm-hmm. or not draft me, extend me, and I refused. Yeah. I just I'm not doing it. I'm in college. I've been discharged, and I got away with it. I bluffed them. Yeah, because you were in college. That that deferment. I was back in college. You know. They decided our detachment was a was a strange detachment. Mm-hmm. We were attached to uh, the Green Berets. Oh, yeah. Now I wasn't a beret. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I was a hot shit. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we all volunteered to go to Vietnam as advisors. Uh huh. 
because I had another year to go in Fairbanks, and it was a miserable yeah, duty. I'm sure. And so they had taken half of half of our detachment in Fairbanks and half of our detachment in Anchorage mm-hmm. and put together a detachment and shipped the first Hueys over to Vietnam. Hmm. Wow. The very early days. Yeah, and we were there as visors, not combat, you know. Uh, right. The berets were the advisors. We were support to them. I mean, nobody was technically fight. Of course, everybody was fighting. You know. Yeah, yeah. But but it was it was different in those days. It was not. We were all volunteers yeah. to start with. And that's right after the French left, right? Right, just after the French left. Wow. I was supposed to be teaching crew chiefs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this is one of the times my sergeant lasted a little bit longer. What we mostly did was we flew either Arvon, mm-hmm. which were the Vietnamese Republic or Army of the Republic of Vietnam, mm-hmm. I think, it was, mm-hmm. and dropping them off so that they could run their missions mm-hmm. with the Berets, yeah. you know, or acting as advisors. Mm-hmm. Or we were flying what we call company, which was CIA people. Mm into Laos or, or that kind of thing and dropping them off. You were the shuttle service for the CIA and the Green Berets, huh? Uh, right. So you were there in the very early days of the war. I know a lot of people, including my own my own brother, who was uh, there for the Tet Offensive in 68. But I, I don't think I've known anybody in Vietnam as early as you were. So you were drinking this whole time. Uh, was it more so while you were in Vietnam, or, or did you curtail that? No, because we'd work all day and all night yeah. and then sleep when we could. But then we'd go downtown for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and you never knew when we were going to get back. <laughs> and I wasn't the only guy doing that. Yeah, so you had a b- big support network for you over there, didn't you? <laughs> right. How long were you there in Vietnam? Six months. So you came back, and did you leave the service at that point, or did you still have some time left? Well, no, I came back. I came back in July. Uh huh. Came back in July, and right back to my regular duty station mm-hmm. in in Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. And I made an application to go to school up in, in University of Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. All right, and got accepted. Mm-hmm. September, I started college, even though I was in the military. Mm-hmm. I had plenty of leave time because I never took much leave mm-hmm. or anything. So you went back to school. At this point, what, you're in your late teens, early 20s? I got out in 62, so I was 22. So after you got out of the Army, we still have, what, six years to go before you finally got sober. Right. Tell me about those years in between. There's something I have to bring into this first. Sure. Then. On the way to Vietnam, we were out drinking one night, uh-huh. and I woke up, and this pretty girl, lady, and it turned out she was nine years or ten years older than I was, wow. was sitting there crying. And I thought, oh, what have I done now? You know, uh-huh. you <laughs> that guilty. And yeah. she said, no, you haven't done anything. She said, I just found out that I have cancer, and I don't have a job, and I don't have uh, insurance. Hmm. And you know what a good young guy that's going to go get killed anyway says, yeah. don't you? Marry me. Oh, my. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we spent the next three days getting her married and getting her established on post. Hmm. Now, I took off 
and I got to be honest now, you, know, you talk about self-centered? Yeah. I never gave it another thought until I came back huh. seven months later. Seven months later. Wow. I never even thought about it. I didn't write her. I didn't do anything. Was that a seven-month blackout, or was that just by choice? No, no, no. I just I just never gave it any thought. You know, you do these things, and then you're on to, to the next thing, huh. you know? I mean, that's how self-centered I was. It didn't take on the same importance that it does for other people. Yeah, it didn't take on any importance to me. So I come back, and we get in late, and so I just grab a bunk at the crew chief's station, you know, mm, for the night. Yeah. I get up the next morning, and I go ask the first uh, sergeant. He says, where are, my, where are our quarters? Well, I was with several other guys. Uh -huh. And he says, well, these guys are all going over here, but you're going off base. Your wife is out there. Oh, no. <laughs> and I hadn't even given it a thought. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I mean, I imagine that's an exaggeration, yeah. but it's not much. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Because I was so worried about not dying. Yeah. And working so hard. And then when I drunk, you know, I was blackout. Right. So there's that. Wow. So I went and uh, the sergeant took me, took me to my house. Mm -hmm. It was base. It was an apartment. Mm -hmm. A nice apartment. Mm -hmm. She was there. And she had, had had a remission to her cancer. And she was, well, she'd gotten a job on camp, on base. Mm -hmm. She'd set up an apartment. She bought in a house. She she had money. Wow. She thought we were married for real. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> the next three months was, was busy. Sure. I was trying to get to college uh -huh. and everything. But I'd come home every night, and we'd play house. And, huh. You know. Uh, and it wasn't bad. I mean, as I say, she was quite a bit older than I sure. was, so she was really more, more like the mother I never had. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but you know, I don't want to get into that. Uh -huh. And I started to I'm First off, I liked her, mm -hmm. but then I started to feel love for her. Uh -huh. And I had never felt love for anybody in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a totally strange thing with me. Yeah. Well, then she suggested, look. We might as well stay married. Mm -hmm. You're happy. I'm happy. Yeah. We're here. And you can go back to school, and I can help you go back to school. Hmm. So for the next three years, I did five years of college, worked a hell of a lot, mm -hmm. didn't drink much. Mm -hmm. Every time I drank, there was a disaster, though. Yeah. I got the engineers kicked off of campus. I got... Uh, I just don't want to go right. on at all yeah. kind of thing. There was five or six episodes, pretty bad episodes, and uh, but I graduated, and I graduated with honors. In the time that between that, I didn't drink. You were dry that whole time while you were... Well, most of the whole time. Most of that time, but enough to be able to graduate with honors. And did, did she drink with you at all? No, she didn't drink at all. And did she ever, the times that you did get drunk, did she ever say anything about it or respond to you? That was the bad thing about it. You know, you got to remember that in her mind, I had saved her life. Right. All right. So I could do no wrong. Yeah. You know, that was that was the bad part of the marriage. Uh -huh. I thought it was pretty good. Don't get of me course, wrong. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good, but I realize now that it wasn't. Uh-huh. So in 65, now I'm 25 years old, 
I graduated, and a month later, I'm getting ready to go to graduate school, and she has a remission of the uh, cancer. And that was disastrous for me Uh because I had really – I'm not sure it was a great love, you know what I mean? So she got – her cancer came back. And I I played hospice for the next four months with 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 some of her friends and such and, and watched her die. Oh, there you were, you know, having fallen in love with her at long last, only to face that. Right. That must have been a really sad time for you. Well, it was, and so she died in about October. Uh huh. And I signed up and went back to Vietnam. Oh my God. As a civilian, this time. Back to Vietnam. I went to work for Brown and Root, in fact, and this is this was during the height of the uh, Tet of a defense. Yeah, event. yeah. Uh, so, how long had you guys lived together before she passed? Before she passed, it had to be three, three and a half years. Three almost. and a half years. The decision to go back to Vietnam, of all places, during the middle of the war and the worst part of the war just coming up. What was that driven by? Was that driven by money? By money? Huh. Yeah. By the time she died. I was yeah. broke. By this time, we had bought a 10 by 50 trailer, but it wasn't worth anything because I had too many, you know, I still had a bunch of mm-hmm. payments on it. So I just sold it and actually I just sure. got rid, rid uh-huh. of it, you know. And then I needed money and Brown and Root was paying good, I mean, you know, they were paying good to money. To go to then. Vietnam. For Vietnam, wow. yeah. So for the next six months, I made good money. Wow. Extremely good money. How far were you from all the fighting and everything that was going on? Uh, I wasn't that. I was. I was out of it. Mainly, I was in Saigon. Uh huh. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, and out at Tansanu Air Base. That's the two places I did. Now, when I was in the helicopters, we went all over the country. But when I was there, I was just a young graduate engineer, you know. And they they think I was like useless. Uh-huh. <laughs> And such and so, but it gave me references because I got, I was yeah, good references, uh-huh. you know. But then I transferred to New York, uh-huh. went in to see the the Raymond Company, not the Brown mm-hmm. and Root Company, mm-hmm. and got a job immediately. Wow! And now, now I was an experienced engineer. See. Had you curtailed your drinking while you were uh, back in Vietnam and rising as an experienced engineer, or were you still drinking about the same way you had? No, it was the same thing. I would work 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours a day, Uh and that kept me from drinking. That's what kept me in college when I didn't have it, you know, during semester break. Uh Or such. Then in the summer, I worked. I, I I added to my income in order to make sure yeah, we could live, yeah. and, and I put myself through college driving pile. Yeah. In in Alaska, you you work from sunup to sundown, and that's you know fourteen sixteen hours. So was it that you just didn't have the time to drink that kept you from drinking? The opposite. I worked that so I wouldn't drink. Oh, okay. Yeah. Were you acknowledging a problem at that point then? Oh, I knew I was an alcoholic. Yeah. It wasn't a problem. It was who I was. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean, my parents never got sober. How was I going to get sober? You know, my 
the some of the pilot friends never got sober. So the people I knew that drank like I did never got sober. Huh. Huh. So I didn't even know there was a way to getting sober. So in your mid-20s, you're acknowledging the fact that you are an alcoholic and that you have been an alcoholic. Well, let me go back. End of my senior year, I was called into the principal's office for something. I don't know what sure. it was. Uh -huh. And a couple of the real pretty girls, you know, the, the cheerleaders, uh -huh. were in there. And we got to talk, and she says, Gordon, you're so funny. And I said, well, if you think I'm funny, how come you don't invite me to the parties anymore? She says, Gordon, you just get too drunk. So I knew I had a problem back when I was in high school. And I knew the way to stop doing it. I mean, that's how I got through college. Uh-huh. Yeah. I took 22 to 25 credit hours a semester. 16 to 18 is normal. Mm-hmm. I did it with straight A, almost straight A's. Mm-hmm. Out of what, a 385 or something like that, out of four? Mm. That was my solution. So I didn't get into too much trouble. And I knew that if I stopped or if I slowed down, I was going to drink. It's quite a program you had back then to control your alcoholism, huh? Right, yeah. Plus, you were already a really smart guy. High IQ, great grades, top of your class, and all that sort of thing. You just had this one little problem that was called blackout drinking, right? One little problem, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to take this back now, remember, I came back to New York. Mm -hmm. I went to work for uh, Brown Engineers, and they, they loved me because I was a graduate engineer. I was smart. Mm -hmm. I worked mm -hmm. hard. And so they sent me to Liberia one time to work with the team mm -hmm. 12 to 16 hours mm -hmm. a day, seven days mm -hmm. a week. Mm -hmm. When we got done, there was always a celebratory party, mm -hmm. and that's when I kicked loose. Mm -hmm. And I got kicked out of Liberia for things I don't know mm -hmm. what I did because I was on a week drunk. Mm -hmm. Complete blackout for a whole week. I still to this day don't know what mm -hmm. I did. But I know I was put on a plane. My passport was stamped persona non grata. Wow. And I was told not to come back. Nobody ever filled you in on that then, huh? No, nobody ever told me what it was. And, you know, I was pretty sheepish. I thought I was going to get fired. Sure. And they came in and they congratulated him. He gave me a bonus because the job was really yeah. good and said, well, when do you want to go with the next one? Hmm. And I said, I did. So I went down to Trinidad and Tobago. Mm -hmm. The same thing. We, we were building highways across and and they hadn't even done a survey. So we built the, the highway down to the uh, south part of the uh, island. We'd come to a place where we needed a bridge and I'd design a bridge. Hmm. And we build it. Got done with that job. Had a party. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. And I got kicked out of the country again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I do not know what I did. Looks like a pattern to me, Gordon. <laughs> it was a different pattern. Yeah. So it's interesting that you get kicked out of two countries, but yet is that just part of the corporate culture that they overlooked your alcoholism? And yeah, I don't know that they even knew I got kicked out of the country because I never. Okay. Told them. They just knew I came back. Yeah. I would think somebody knew, 
But I don't think they ever brought it up because, you know, when I worked, I worked hard. Yeah, so you were a good enough engineer that, and also a functional alcoholic at that point that right. why call you on the carpet while the business is getting done, right? Right. So we're talking about your mid to almost the, the age of 28. After Trinidad and Tobago, how much longer before you finally hit AA? I came back and they put me in the office. Uh-huh. Now, you can imagine how I like to be in the office. (laughs) I had a job on the Jersey Turnpike, Mm -hmm. which I did a lot of preliminary design Mm -hmm. for, but I was in the office most of the Mm -hmm. time, and I hated Mm -hmm. it. By this time, I had remarried Mm -hmm. my second Mm -hmm. wife, and I had a daughter. In fact, she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's why I had to Mm -hmm. remarry. So I would go home at night, and then I would drink more often. Mm -hmm. You know, not every day, but there would be one or two nights a week I'd come home drunk. Hmm. When you were overseas, you used working 12 to 16 hours a day as a way to stay dry and not have to drink. While you were in the office, was that tough to sustain? And so you just had more time to drink? No, I couldn't stay there. I mean, you know, they would run us out of the office after seven and a half hours. So what do you do then? Well... I usually would go have a couple of drinks with the guys, and then I would take the subway up Mm -hmm. home, and once or twice a week, it it ended up I really got drunk. Mm -hmm. And the other times, I had a couple of drinks, and they have a drink when I got home, but it was not very conducive to a marriage. Did your second wife, did she drink with you at all? Not after the first couple of times we went drinking. She gave up drinking also. You guys had a new baby that you had to worry about as well. Well, yeah, during that period, and, and but that was before. Well, I guess I, I guess you're right. I guess that's right. I guess she never started drinking. Mm. But I, you know, I, I don't look at what anybody else is doing. <laughs> I look at what, what I'm doing. I guess. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I, you know. Well, I know that's that's what we are. We're we're extraordinarily uh, self-centered people, aren't we? Right. So, did she ever ask you to stop or slow down or moderate? Oh yeah. In fact, that's why I stopped huh. that year, right. remember? That's, that's, that was that year, that last uh-huh. year. I came back from Trinidad and Tobago. She knew I'd been in trouble. She didn't know what I'd been in, but she knew I'd been yeah. in trouble. And she, she said, if you don't stop drinking now, I'm going to leave uh-huh. you. And I said, okay. And then I stopped for that full year. Huh. And that was miserable. I'll bet. You know, I mean. Because all I could think about is I wanted to yeah. drink. What people tend to call white knuckle sobriety, huh? That's what they yeah. call it. And in fact, that, that's what it was, you know, even back in the other yeah. days. I mean, white knuckle because, you know, if I worked 16 hours or 14 hours a day, right? that kept my mind off of drinking and made me so tired that I didn't drink. Right. You know? Now I couldn't work, so... I'm not sure what I could do. You know what I mean? So she she basically threatened to leave if you didn't stop and you stopped for a year. How how did you finally end up in AA if you were able to white knuckle it by yourself? Well, I white knuckled, but then I told you I had that last three months of being on the skid row. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh-huh. And I, I say skid row. You know, Broadway and 8th is really not skid row, right? No, it's a pretty nice part of town. But not when you're panhandling <laughs> in the street. Yeah. They run you off quicker there. We'll be right back. 
My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book podcast is read by Howard L., who receives no compensation for this vital service work. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, anyplace. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. You stopped, you were panhandling, you were living out on the streets. When did you finally find AA, and how did you find it? Well, I, I told you I went and threw, threw, tried to right, throw my daughter right, out of the uh-huh. window. Beat up your and, wife. Yeah. Well, at that point in time, I knew that it wasn't going to work. I couldn't, I couldn't stop anymore. Mm-hmm. All right, so I decided I was going to commit hmm. suicide. Now, you know the George Washington Bridge. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, well, I think it's still open. You could walk across yeah, it. Uh-huh. And so I drove up toward the middle, mm-hmm. stopped the car, got out of the car, and came out of a blackout. Mm-hmm. When I was about to take, I stepped one step over the rail, and I was about to take the second step. And I'll never forget, what am I doing? You know, you come out of a blackout. Do I really want to kill myself? And I knew I was going to thinking of killing myself, you know. And I, I was too scared to live and too scared to die. But I said, wait a minute, man, I better do something. So I stepped back, uh, back over. Yeah, yeah, I got long legs. That's why I do some of this stuff, you know. And about this time, here oh, come the geez. cops, right? <laughs> All right. And they come up and they don't they don't get close because I'm still right, right uh-huh. on the edge, you know. They're worried about me jumping. They said, "Well, what are you doing out there, son?" Well, I don't know if he said "son." I think he might have <laughs> said "asshole," but I'm not sure. <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'm a photographer." <laughs> oh, and you see that ship down there? That's got a special package that's going to Liberia. <laughs> All right, and I threw these names around and everything else, and I'm here to get some pictures of it for their their newspaper, the Liberian uh-huh. Times uh-huh. or whatever it yeah, was. I yeah. knew the name of the thing. And then <laughs> the cop asked <laughs> the obvious question, where's your camera? <laughs> and I said, well, I just dropped it. I was just walking back to get uh, my next one. It's in the trunk. Wow. And he looked at me, and I don't know whether he believed me or not, but he just wanted me off there. When I got back, he says, get in that car and get off this bridge. Wow. And I did. And to this day, I don't know where I'd heard AA. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I don't remember ever hearing Mm -hmm. of it before. When I got off that bridge, I knew where to go to get in the payphone. You remember the payphone? Uh Uh-huh. And I called, I had some change. I had, in fact, I had mm-hmm. 40 or 50 bucks because I been, didn't spend my panhandling mm-hmm. money that day. And uh, I called mm. AA. And I, my brother lived out mm-hmm. in New Jersey mm-hmm. now. I said I gave him mm-hmm. their address. For some reason, I, I yeah. knew it or I had it. Uh-huh. I'm not sure what. 
And they said, okay, you get home and you wait. Somebody will come pick you up. Uh-huh. And in those days, they sent somebody out. Uh-huh. So I get to my brother's house and I change. I have some clothes there. Uh-huh. Uh, I get looking halfway uh-huh. respectable, shave and wash my hair and get all the filth out of me. Yeah. And about seven o'clock, Gene makes a call mm-hmm. at the house and he knocks at the door and, and my brother opens the door and he didn't know anybody from AA was gone. Oh. And Gene says, I'm from AA. Which one of you have the problem? <laughs> And my brother looks, and he points <laughs> that like <guy>. that. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, he came over, and, and I, I still tell this story. This is partly true. The part is he had a big fist. He was a practice linebacker for the New oh. York Jetters uh-huh. on the practice team. You know, so uh-huh. He was a big uh-huh. boy. And he said, if you don't take that first drink, you can't get mm. drunk. And I always say, well, I still got that scar, which is not true. <laughs> but I still remember it, and it still hurts when I do that. Right. He meant business. And, and I looked at him, and I said, look, any fool knows that. How do I not take that first drink? And this big, rough-looking guy gets his big grin on his face, moves his finger out, and I sort of slide down the wall, and he says, come with me, and wow. I'll show you. Now, the interesting thing about that uh-huh. is my brother uh-huh. was there, all right, and he denied totally. Just before COVID, I went over to where he lives in right. uh, Florida and gave him his 25-year trip. Wow. So, you know, he had a chance 50 years ago. Was he drinking uh, like you were at that time, or was that yet to come? I'm not sure. I, mm-hmm. some, I've only heard some of his stories because right. he, mm-hmm. he's always lived up north or right. in Florida, uh-huh. and I've always lived down here, you know. Right. And we're not that close, but we're we're close. But uh, I suspect he had the same problem with Black House. I know he got thrown into jail in New Orleans, and yeah. it was pretty bad. And I know he got thrown out of another city in the United States, not overseas. He's got some of the same story. Somewhere along the way, Gene's 12-step call saved two men's lives, one sooner than the other. Right. Exactly right. Because he knew where to go. Mm-hmm. You know, when he had problems, he called me. Now, I didn't 12-step mm-hmm. him, but I knew enough people up there to get with him, some guys that had good sobriety, and he didn't have to take a drink after he called me. So, so what were your early meetings like? Uh, he took you to a meeting. What What were your early days in AA like? Uh, mostly, uh, I was in New Jersey for the first year. Mm-hmm. First in North Jersey, and then I went down and built a bridge in uh, Brigantine, mm-hmm. which is outside Atlantic City. Sure. And uh, the ones in up north, there's all those little towns, you know, oh, yeah. Montclair and, yeah. and Parsippany yeah. and Denville and Booton. Right. They all had a meeting, but there's only one or two nights a week. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you had to go get your 90 and 90, you had you traveled quite a bit. A lot. Yeah. When Gene came to meet me, he had three other guys in the car. Oh, wow. He picked up one that Monday. Uh-huh. 
He picked up one that Tuesday. He picked up one that Thursday. And then he picked me up on a Friday night. All right. Uh -huh. And the four of us ran around together. You know, uh, we were we were his pigeons. Huh. And he made sure that we picked each other up. We supported each other. Uh-huh. We went to meetings. Hmm. Uh, we didn't talk. Mm -hmm. We were told to take the cotton out of our ears and put it in our mouth. Right. And so we didn't talk for six to eight months. Wow. We just went to meetings and listened. We would talk on the way there, on the way back. Uh -huh. We'd stop and get coffee at a diner. They, they don't have... Uh, Quite well, of course, it's all different now, but they had diners in almost every little town, oh, yeah. you know, and so we'd stop at the diner and they were open either all night or till 11 or 12 o'clock. And yeah, they had discussion meetings. There were a lot more speaker meetings. Yeah. Uh, my first speaker meeting was in the church mm -hmm. that I had given up 10 years before. Wow. How coincidental is that? Yeah, right. There were... A lot of discussion meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly, though, uh, several were based on the steps mm -hmm. out of the big book, not the 12 and 12. Right. 12 and 12 wasn't that popular in those mm -hmm. days. They were smaller. They were a lot more friendly. I, you know, I mean, really? Delta is an exception, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they would go out of their way to make you feel comfortable and welcome. Right. But they also were pretty no-nonsense, weren't they? Oh, yeah, right. Uh, the Booton, New Jersey meeting, which was my home meeting to start with for about the first six months, uh -huh. they had one guy that had 30 years of sobriety when I had six months. Wow. So that's 69 to 39. So he had come in the program when he was in 1939. Wow. All right. They had several guys that were 25, 20 to 25. Yeah. Several, I mean, you know, three or four yeah. guys. First generation AAers, right? First generation in AA. Yeah. So that would make you kind of a second generation guy, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. It made me sure I wanted to listen because they had good sobriety. Yeah, I'll bet. So fast forward us a little bit. You started working the steps and did you get yourself a sponsor right away? Was that a requirement? Yeah, Jim was my first sponsor. How long had he been sober? Uh, two years. Became my first sponsor. He took me through the steps the first time. Mm -hmm. Then I moved down to Atlantic City. He was still my sponsor because I was going through a divorce. Mm -hmm. My wife didn't want anything to do with me after that night. Hmm. So we were getting a divorce, and I hung out. I didn't want the divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt that you know I was making a change, and there was a good chance of it. And so I would come up. There, plus the company that I was working for was based in New Jersey, yeah. out of Fort Lee, right outside uh -huh. the Georgia Bridge. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And my wife lived just in the Bronx on the other side of the bridge. Sure. So I had a lot of reasons to be up there on weekends if I wasn't working. Yeah. Even then, I worked an eight-hour shift, mm -hmm. and then I... Because I was a, 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 a ex-union pile driver, mm -hmm. I bossed a fabrication yard for six hours, and I went to a meeting every day. Mm -hmm. No Zoom. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. And then, you know, 
an hour and a half before and an hour and a half later, sometimes not before, just afterwards, because I'd just be able to make it uh-huh. meetings. But yeah. the only other thing I will say about that group, those other four people yeah. in San Antonio, uh, were you at San Antonio? Yeah, at the convention, yeah. Okay, you noticed they, they had a place where the old timers could Yeah, set. down on the floor by the stage there. If you look down there, all three of the guys that he picked up, plus me, were there. Wow. Over 40 years of survival. That's amazing. And I was still a newcomer, remember? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but Gene, after about a year and a half, mm-hmm. I mean, he had about three years of sobriety. Right, just, uh-huh got drunk and was killed on the Garden State Parkway doing 90 miles an hour. Oh, no. Wow, and he'd been your sponsor for... Almost a year, yeah. Wow, that must have been a real blow. It was. But I was smart enough, or no, some of my friends were smart enough to tell me, get another sponsor. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so I got a second sponsor. He was a hard-nosed son of a bitch. He was an ex-Navy chief. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And he said, now, Gordon, you've been fucking around with this program for a year. All right. You've been running and gunning, and I've been watching you. Yeah. And he says, you don't want to take this serious. Don't ask me to be your sponsor. Mm. If you want to take this serious, we're going to start back over on the steps. And he took me through the steps the right way. He did. Yeah. How about the other three guys who were Gene's sponsees? No, they were, they were in North Jersey. I was there by this time. I was out oh, okay. Okay. So they got their own sponsors where they went, right? No, I don't know what they did. I know they stayed sober. And I, I, the, the interesting thing, I didn't know that they were going to be there because you know, we didn't stay in touch. It's just that the guy looked at me and says, are you Gordon? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I'm Tommy. And, and, and that didn't mean anything to me. He says, I've got two days of sobriety on you. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, the other guys are here because they were all you know they were all good friends wow all those years later to reconnect what a special it, thing to have happen oh it was it, it really it really impressed me well, the other thing impressed me is, is remember mm-hmm. when we came in all right the ratio was two people stay sober immediately mm-hmm. one person gets drunk time and time again, and then get sober. Mm-hmm. And the third one, uh, fourth one never gets sober. And mm-hmm. I don't think that ratio is anywhere close like that anymore. Well, things have really changed since since you first came in, obviously, in, in AA. You worked your steps with this new sponsor. How long did he sponsor you? About five years. About five years. Yeah, and by that time, I'd moved down to Texas, but been back up to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I moved down to Texas here after about I was three years sober, bought a house. The company had just moved down here. Mm-hmm. They had a j- job in uh, Washington, D.C., and sent me up there. The one other thing about it is the divorce got through that January of the next year. Okay. Uh-huh. And I wasn't allowed to see my daughter until she was 13. Oh, my goodness. No, maybe more than that. It was in 83, so 14. And she got in contact with me. So sometimes things don't work out real well quickly. Yeah. I can see by your face, Gordon, that that's still something that really pains you. It does pain me. But 
I mean, I have a good relationship with my daughter. Did she have any of the same problems with alcohol? No, she has some of the same problems, but not drinking problems. Not drinking problems. That's interesting. She's an extremely hard worker. She's extremely hard-headed, very smart. So the apple doesn't fall so far from the tree, does it? No, it didn't fall closer, but she just doesn't drink. I mean, well, that's not true. She does drink, but not much. And she doesn't know she could have a problem mm -hmm. because she's real careful about that. But, but then again, you know, she's got that same willpower that I had. Yeah, I get that. Well, you know, you've been sober such a long time. There's so many years between that early period of your sobriety until today. I get the impression from knowing you all these years, because I think I met you when I first came in over at the Post Oak in, in some of those early meetings, and you were still sober way into the double digits, even when I first got sober. Were there certain plateaus or whatever that you hit over the years, or have you always kept going to meetings? What does what your program look like long term? It always has been meetings except for one year. Really? One year, uh, I took a project in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and I took it under that same zeal that I did it mm -hmm. because my chance of a bonus was very good. Yeah. So I spent three months in New York City at the mm -hmm. design mm -hmm. offices. We totally re redesigned the job. The job was supposed to take two years to build, and we built it in nine months. Uh -huh. But I didn't get one drink for almost a full year. Huh. And how I stayed sober is I worked, you know, thing. And when I got back, I spent three weeks with my sponsor, and he took off, and we did nothing but meetings. There wasn't any AA where you were in Saudi Arabia. No, Saudi, they, at those days, the only place they had AA in those days was Aramco Compound. Sure. Uh-huh. And I couldn't get on the Aramco compound because I was not Aramco. So I've known other guys, like men who were merchant marines, uh, like old Charlie T, and some of those people who had to get along on the book and, you know, tapes and other things. Did you, while, while you were over in Saudi? Yeah, 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 that's a good, 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 real point. The second guy, my Navy chief, uh -huh. right, was his sobriety went back to the Second World War. Wow. And he was on a ship for a couple of years during the war. Mm -hmm. So he didn't get meetings, but they developed a loaner program, which you don't hear about, about at yeah. all, really. Yeah. But it was a real ritual of what you went through, what you read, how you prayed, day and night. You did some other things. You did good deeds for people sure. without any announcement mm -hmm. or anything mm -hmm. else. And it was, I did that in Saudi. You did. I was fortunate enough I was a boss, so I had a, a suite mm -hmm. for my room mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where the other guys had to be two in a room. So would you say that experience in Saudi really pushed you to the edge of your sobriety? It it, it took me close to the edge. Yeah. Yeah. It really did in the fact that when I came back and it was all that letdown, mm -hmm. that was when I got drunk when I was drinking. Right. Right. You had a pocket full of money at that time, too, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I had to give some of it to some of the, my crew, you know. But I'm, I'm trying to think about the time frame here. How, how long were you sober when you were in Saudi? That was in uh, 88, so 78, 68, 20, 20 years. 20 years. Wow. And it took you, it, it took you right to the edge. 
took me it took me very close to the wow. edge yeah and my sponsor saw it because i had to come back through new york uh-huh. which is the most fortunate thing that ever happened because when i went back through there i had to lay out the drawings and give them the s belts mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. else and then gene and then steve met me we got on the metro and we went right down to the maryland washington dc area yeah. and we started going to meetings mm-hmm. and i i mean i spent i mean he just he just he knew how close i was hmm. what an important story to be able to tell these days because i think anytime especially newcomers or people relatively early in the program take a look at somebody with 10 or 20 years of sobriety the assumption is that guy couldn't possibly want to go take a drink, uh, especially if he's a regular in meeting after meeting, and then you don't see him for a while. You no- normally don't think that that guy's gone out to get drunk. And it, you know, it happens, and that's why I'm so fortunate that that he recognized that in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and remember, now there was no internet. Yeah, yeah. My phone calls cost me three dollars a minute. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, most of it was by telex. Uh huh. And I sure didn't want to send telex because every telex that came in the office went to the presidents of the company and down. Right, right. Yeah, hard to have a conversation about AA and keep it uh, anonymous on a telex. (laughs) Now, so at 20 years, this happens. Uh, Did that happen for you again at any point between that 20 years and the 52? There, There was really two times one when i was about eight years in the program uh-huh. i remarried for a third time right. and that's where my stepson comes uh-huh. from the one in florida the ones i'm really close sure. to that was another one where i didn't know what a father or i didn't know what a husband was supposed to do yeah. i really didn't yeah and so the first year was miserable mm-hmm. between him and i and between her and i and she finally came and said, Gordon, we got to do something about that. Yeah. And we started getting counseling. Uh, yeah, counseling. Yeah. So we went to counseling. I went to a lot of counseling. She went to Al-Anon. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, her, her famous expression, uh, she had two famous expressions. One of them is we were walking up to a place in Kentucky, mm-hmm. Louisville. Mm-hmm. And it was across a big, you know, how yeah. beautiful blue oh, yeah. grass. And we we're walking across the field to get to the church or hall, right. whatever it was. There were two guys standing out there smoking. And as we got close, he says, you're all looking for AA? And we said, yes, sir, we are. He said, which one do you have the problem? <laughs> and before I could say a word, she says, I have the problem. He has the disease. Oh, my God. You know, and that shows you how far she had come. Her father was an alcoholic, too, an untreated alcoholic. So, so she started Al-Anon. She started Al-Anon after we married. Now, how old was the, your stepson at that time? Uh, when I first came into marriage, he was about six. He and I would get on a motorcycle and we'd go to meetings. Wow. He probably went to a third of the amount of weenies I went. And I went every day. And he was just a little kid at the time, huh? He was just seven, eight years old, yeah. So what would he do, just sit in the back, play, or whatever while you were in the meeting? Or did he sit right next to you? No, no. Sometimes he sat up there next to me. If it was a speaker's yeah. meeting, he'd sit up. 
But if it was just a discussion meeting, he'd sit over the corner and do his homework. All right? Isn't that amazing? He came down with uh, Hep C mm -hmm. back when Hep C was not, and they didn't know what the cure oh, yeah. was. Uh -huh. All right. And they, what, they, what they did tell him, he had to stop drinking. Hmm. All right. And he called me up and said, I need to go to AA. Because he knew that was the way to stop he drinking. He knew. Wow. And he went, to, he went to meetings for three or four years. He got into an ex experimental program right. with uh, whatever cured it. And, and, and if you're on, it was if you're on, yeah. And got well. And now he drinks. Hmm, that's interesting. And he, he drinks responsibly. I mean, you know, we go out to dinner almost every time when they're here and down there once in a while. He may have a beer once in a while. But that's all. So maybe he wasn't a real alcoholic at the time. Oh, I don't mean he was an he, alcoholic. I think he just knew that he had to stop drinking and he wasn't confident he could do it without the problem. That's a story you don't hear very often where people go into AA just because they want to stop for, for other reasons than because they're alcoholic. Right. Exactly right. He wanted to stop because he wanted to get well. That's a, that's a neat story. So that was one of the two times you said that there were two other times well, I've always had a trouble with God. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. My group, or the group, is my higher yeah. power. Even today, it still is. Mm -hmm. But after we started going to counseling and all mm -hmm. that, things got better. Mm. And then I got a job, and then another job. I had a hard time working the first few years. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I'd work, and I'd feel like somebody's going to fire me, and i quit. Yeah, uh-huh. And did that, uh -huh. and that, which never happened when I was uh -huh. drinking, yeah. you know. But I didn't quit the company. I quit the job and went to another job in the company because everybody wanted me to work. Yeah, I get that. Sure. So, okay, Ralph was one of the guys. He had been a uh, senior vice president for Westinghouse, mm -hmm. and I was his sponsor. You know, and we went to meetings uh, two or three, I mean, uh, about a year, a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And he took one. He took one look at me one day and says, "Gordon, you don't know a thing about working, but you sure are a good sponsor. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you as my sponsor for AA, but I'm going to sponsor you for work, hmm. and I'm hmm. going to teach you how to work. What? All right. <laughs> and he says the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to stay with this job you just started for three years." <laughs> now think about that here's a guy that hadn't worked more than six months for the same job since he got sober and now i had three years oh my gosh well that enabled me to do two things one was to work with bev and go ahead and go through all the counseling yeah. there secondly it was to work with Corey uh -huh. and go through all that counseling yeah. and third was the family counseling for all three of yeah. us yeah yeah and at the end of three years, I got a tremendous promo promotion. Mm -hmm. We moved, a big increase in pay, mm -hmm. and everything was just going great. Yeah. I mean to tell you, I thought everything was. I couldn't. I couldn't have been happier. Mm -hmm. Two weeks after we moved to Des Moines, mm -hmm. uh, she came down with cancer. Oh no. Or she had cancer. I mean, she didn't come down. Yeah. It became apparent. Oh. And she died. It was uterine cancer, which spread to the brain. Oh, dear. About three months. And she died four months after oh, that. I'm sorry to hear that. At the same time, Ralph, my work sponsor, died. Oh. 
he was 67 years old, but like heart disease, I uh -huh. guess. And then my sponsor's wife, Joni, who was working on trying to get me into a spiritual condition, mm -hmm. died. Oh, my gosh. All in August of 76. Well, you can imagine what a shock that was. So you were only sober eight, seven, eight years when all that happened, huh? Yeah, right. Anyway, I walked, I walked out of that third memorial service just screaming at the God I didn't believe in. You yeah, know? yeah. All right. And uh, hmm. I, about halfway through, I, I realized that I must be crazy. Because mm -hmm. I'm shouting at somebody I don't even believe in. Hmm. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm not crazy. I mean, maybe there is a God. Mm -hmm. And maybe I ought to start exploring it. And then that was the mechanism that propelled me into a search for God as I understand him. Mm -hmm. So that's been a vision quest of yours for all this time now? Yeah, right. Almost, 30, almost 40 years, or maybe over 40 years. And so what have you found over the years? <laughs> that was a whole nother hour. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> but I may make this a two-part interview. <laughs> what I found is that I have a firm belief in God. Mm -hmm. All right. I don't believe in the all-powerful God mm -hmm. because if he's all-powerful, I can't believe he'd let some of the things that happen happen. I believe he's more like, and I don't want to say a Buddha, right. but I mean, that's more like he's got two little angels. One's the devil and one's the angel. And he tries to communicate me what his will is. Mm -hmm. And when it doesn't really work, he'll send one or the other down there to say, are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm. Are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm. He's not all powerful. Mm -hmm. What he is, is he's trying to influence other people to do his will. That's a pretty tall order, though, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, <laughs> you've been in the meeting, yeah. group conscious meeting, oh, yeah. where yeah. there's 20 people and there's 14 ways they want to go, right? Yeah. All right. And they're not necessarily all right. Uh -huh. And, you know, some of the damage that's done is not healing. Mm. Some of the damage I've done is not healing. Yeah, yeah. No, and sometimes my good intentions cause more problems than if I just left it alone. Yeah, I get that. What's it been like for you over the years, feeling the way you feel with your own spiritual belief of God, sitting in meetings and hearing people talk about their concept of God? I feel that they have the constitutional right to be wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? No, it's it's not that. I, I mean, it's what they believe. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't believe it, but they have the right to believe that. The reason I asked that, Gordon, was because when I was new in sobriety and they were talking about God, I felt really excluded because I didn't have, I, I had a certain belief, but it wasn't a sustained belief. And it seemed like everybody else had something that they could really hang their hat on. And mine just seemed kind of flimsy. And it wasn't until I really started working the steps that I was able to strengthen that core belief in a power greater than myself. But in the beginning, it was a very limp-wristed approach. Well, keep in mind that my firm belief in God for the first eight years 
was Charlton Heston. Yeah, Ten Commandments. That's what I thought. Uh -huh. Now, did I believe? After a while, uh -huh. I don't think I believed, but I listened to other people with the interpretation. Mm -hmm. And then after that happened, uh, you know, with the mm -hmm. three deaths, I realized that God was doing for me, not mm -hmm. not against me. The first thing I said is, why have you done this to me, of course? And I realized he didn't do to me, he did for me. He put the people in my life that I needed to really improve my life and mm -hmm. to take care of. Mm -hmm. Some people have some strange things. Mm -hmm. Not about God, but about sobriety, too. You know? Yeah. So how does somebody with so many years sober reconcile some of the dilemmas in a belief in God, where God can be all-powerful, God is not all-powerful. If he was, then these things wouldn't be going on. Do you find that your program and your spiritual beliefs are ever in conflict with each other? No. In fact, I, I find they reinforce each uh -huh. other. Because, you know, people have their belief about their program. Yeah. And some of them have the absolute right to be constitutionally yeah. wrong. Yeah. You know, and I, it's not my worry. Right. Uh, and such. And so I, I, I see, actually, my program has strengthened my belief in my higher mm. power. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that what it's supposed to do? I think that's what exactly supposed to. Yeah, I wonder whether they intended that at the very beginning, or if that that's just something that happened as a result of everything else people were doing. Well, I I don't think in the very beginning. If you read some of the how it worked or how it works, I mean, some yeah. of those stories. All right, they believed in the Oxford group God. Yeah, that's right, didn't they? They believed in praying. They didn't believe in the Catholics. Yeah. You know, they believed they were on. It wasn't for Clarence Snyder. Right, up in Cleveland. Who I've heard, if he wasn't so abrasive, yeah. he would have been number AA number three yeah. in the foundation. You know? Well, it's interesting because he came down to Akron and Dr. Bob wasn't real helpful with what he was being told by Clarence and the other guys from Cleveland that there was excommunication threatened by the Catholic Church. What I've read is Dr. Bob's response was, that's not our problem, which yeah. it's it's hard to believe that as much as Dr. Bob has been mythologized, that he would have had that kind of response. But it's perfectly understandable why at that time that was the response. No, yeah, no, they've had very firm strict disciplines of religion. Right. Uh, so I don't think they were trying to let your program affect your belief in God. I think they were letting your belief in God affect your program. Right. And there was also a fundamental disconnect between what the church thought AA was trying to do to its members and what actually what actually occurred. Gordon, I, this has been amazing. I, I just, you brought in so many astonishing things about your life that <laughs> the problem is i got 52 years and i probably got another 10 stories that i could say, say well you know? somewhere along the way somebody's got to hear those because you know obviously uh, you've helped a lot of people over the years what what's been your experience with sponsoring other men over the years that you've been sober after the first year i mean i did a lot of 12-step mm -hmm. drunks in fact, we carried Breach Prandy in our, our car. You know, my sponsor, that's the first thing he told me is you're taking them, give them a shot of that, and don't let them have DTs on the right. way. 
Now, there really wasn't that many halfway houses right. where I was. So we take them to the VA or we take them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Or there was one way out in West Jersey mm-hmm. run by a, a real, real character. Mm-hmm. Her name was Gloria Delaney. Mm-hmm. And her middle initial was O. <laughs> she was God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way she came across. Oh, my. But I didn't know her that well. I went a couple of times. That was a two and a half hour drive from where I was. Uh-huh. But after a couple of years in the program, it didn't appeal to me because I didn't have that much time. You got to remember, I was working yeah. an awful lot in those days. But when I was about five or six years in that program, maybe maybe the seven, maybe it was that, that thing with uh, somewhere in that range, all of a sudden... I started to think, is this all there is? And it was before that. And that's when I found out that other guys, you know, about seven or eight Uh years in the program, started saying the same things. And since that time, I've sponsored a bunch of guys. Really? Yeah. I've got, oh, I'd say four or five, four or five guys that have got over 40 years. Yeah. We're no no longer sponsors. We're just good friends. I get that. I've I've got guys I've sponsored over twenty five years and and even more. And it's you, you almost kind of become co sponsors. And it, like you said, it's just it can become like a really deep friendship. I I still think it's good to be able to think about the fact that I have a sponsor, such that if I know the wheels all fall off, there's somebody I can call call the sponsor as opposed to just calling a friend. So that, that's, like you say, it's semantics. That's that's the one problem I have. Oh, Jesus, I forgot his name. You know Jim from Delta? Yeah, uh-huh. He was my sponsor for the last five or really? six years before yeah. he died, and I have not replaced him yeah. since. He was, a real, uh, he was a real mover and shaker over there for many, many years, wasn't he? Yeah, but he also had, you know, he had some good advice. Yeah. I had a difficult marriage. My fourth marriage was really a difficult marriage. Uh, we were we were together uh, thirty years. Wow! And ended up getting divorced about ten years ago. Uh-huh. But we split about every ten years, so it'd be t- twice. Right? She. When you say split, you mean got divorced and then got remarried? No, no, we didn't get divorced. She would uh, kick uh-huh. me out, or I. Uh, such, or we would both move out, and uh, then she'd go to get an apartment, and I would get a garage apartment for six months, uh-huh. right? and then we got back together again, and uh, then we split again, and no, I guess we, I guess we only split mm-hmm. once, really. We almost split a couple times, and then she, at, at the end of 30 years, mm-hmm. she, uh, well, it's a right. hard story to tell. I have two stepsons out of that. Well, actually, one. One of them's dead. Uh-huh. But the stepson, we were both good friends. I mean, it wasn't like Corey, but it was like. Right. And we, I, I was up in Seattle. We were going crabbing, and after crabbing, we got together, put the boat together, sure. and we're coming back home. And he says, "You want to see Mom's new home?" And I said, "What?" And he says, "You don't know." And I didn't have a slight idea. She bought a new oh home. My. Right Holy cow! Uh, now, to show you where maybe she wasn't thinking too straightly, she wanted to stay married, mm-hmm. live up there, come visit here in 
July or August. Mm -hmm. And then I would go up and visit there in December or January. Hmm. Now, can you think of two worst places you would be on those (laughs) two months? Houston is hot as hell, and she doesn't like heat. And Seattle is rainy and and snowy (laughs) in those years. And I don't like cold and snow. But she thought that was a perfect yeah, idea. How did it work? Uh, about a year. Uh-huh. And then I said, I can't handle this anymore. I want a divorce. And I asked for the divorce. Yeah, Because, no, on 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 at least the last mm-hmm. two and really the third, the, the, the mm-hmm. second one, right, I believe that marriage was for a lifetime. Yeah. Now, I can't blame the second wife because I was a miserable yeah. son of a bitch. got to remember, I was also a mean yeah. drunk. Just like my mother. Yeah. But the third one, I, I, I couldn't control. That, was, you know, that wasn't God's will. That was God's will. So the fourth, will. your fourth marriage lasted 30 years, even with the two splits. And you say you got divorced right about 10 years ago. So how about marriage number five? What was that like? There ain't no marriage number five. No, you're kidding. Okay. You stopped on an even number then, huh, Gordon? (laughs) I like the even number better. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Well, so you've gone through an incredible number of different experiences. Like you said, we could we could go on for hours like this, but I, I'm just it, it's just astounding to me that you've kept such a really great perspective. Anytime I hear you talking about your experience, there's just a certain part of it that I can't ignore as just the rantings of a old timer. You know, your message continues to be fresh to me. Yeah, well, that's the gift of the program. Yeah, you know that's the gift of a lot of mm-hmm. meetings. All right, that's the gift that when I first came in here, I was the most negative person you ever want to meet, mm-hmm. and that came on for several years. You know, I could put on a good face. What I'm really you call me is an extroverted introvert. Extroverted introvert. Okay. I'm extremely introverted, but if I put on a good show to keep you away. Mm-hmm then that's the extroversion part. Huh. And, you know, that's been slowly breaking down. And I'll tell you what, COVID has been one of the main things that's really made me realize that I may not feel quite so bad toward people that I used to, you know. Is that because of the number of meetings that you're going to on Zoom or, or just the situation of the disease? The meetings, right? yeah. But, but the thing I like about Zoom is I didn't have hard, hard uh, trouble listening to you at all. Right. But when you put you in 20 other room people room with 20 other people. It's tough to hear. I may get five of them. In fact, even when I go in person now, I only hear half of what's said huh. because the, the leader talks like this. And people have the habit of starting very high, and then soon as there's something important they want to say, they go like this and they talk like that. Yeah, keep it in the low down. So you don't hear it. And, and with Zoom, I hear everyone. So from a practical standpoint, Zoom is actually a more enjoyable listening experience for you than any given live meeting. For comprehension, yes. Yeah. But not for fellowship. Yeah. I mean, you don't know how good I felt when I started going back to Post Oak on Sunday or the speakers meeting at Spring Branch on Friday. Isn't it great to be back with other human beings? 
Right. Zoom is very two-dimensional, obviously. It's great to be able to see people's faces and everything. But when you think of all the years we've spent in meetings, shaking hands or just sitting next to people and chit-chatting before and after the meeting, it's uh, it's an experience that I don't, I'm wondering how these people who've gotten, they're calling themselves Zoom babies. The people who've never gone to a live meeting just started on Zoom and already they're people with one-year chips just from Zoom. It's interesting because uh, I go to a lot of Zoom meetings where there are a lot of Zoom babies. Uh -huh. And every time I see one, I'll go up and introduce myself. Huh. And I said, I don't know if you know me because like on a 6.30 meeting, I never talk. I'm one of those that feel that if everybody's supposed to say in the center of the crowd, you got to have some people on the edge, right? Sure, I get that, yeah. And and I don't mind that. I don't mind not talking in a meeting. I mean, it's such at all because then I can listen. Yeah. And the nice thing about listening in Zoom is I hear almost everybody. Isn't that great? Yeah. But what they're missing, and they will tell you that. I went uh, Sunday. There was two people there. Mm -hmm. One was a gal and the other was a guy. And they said, I don't know if you uh, know who I am. And both knew who I was. Mm -hmm. But it's good to meet you in person. Mm -hmm. And they agreed that that was what something they were missing. They didn't understand the fellowship when it came to that. I hope that Zoom babies do get it and do start to connect. I think we're still a little ways off from the point at which people can be 100% comfortable in live meetings. But the cool thing is that AA has survived it all. And here we are a year and two or three months later, and it's all worked out well. Hey, Gordon, this, is, this has been just an amazing conversation. I, I never dreamt that I would ever get to know as much about you as I do now. <laughs> You're going to have to give me a shot of finding out something about you, too. <laughs> well, yeah, sometime along the way. In fact, uh, I've there are some people who have suggested that I become interviewed, and uh, that may happen before long. But just being able to talk to somebody who is as connected to AA at 52 years, who I think answers the question emphatically that you can never be too old or have too many years or to, to keep your program fresh. Seeing you in meetings is always a treat for me, but seeing how you've handled all the difficult things in your life, as well as the joys and the, and the other gifts of sobriety has been big. I agree. It's interesting. The development of AA, you said, is, is made another development. Sure. I went to, I've gone to almost all of the uh, five-year conventions. Uh -huh. I was in Miami in 70. I was at Denver oh, yeah. in 75. I was in San Diego, I think, in 80. I went to Montreal. I also went, when I came in the program, uh -huh. of course, they said powerless over alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. Secondly, they didn't hold hands. Right. They didn't say, hi, Gordon. They started changing. Uh, Hawaii made mm -hmm. a big change when they started shouting back, yeah, hi. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, and then uh, the other big change is when they started holding hands. Yeah. And all of those things now, we're not doing it anymore. Yeah. And I miss it. And I hated it when they made the change. <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah, and that's one of the drawbacks. The biggest drawback to Zoom that I've noticed over the past year is that in a regular meeting, when you say something that strikes other people funny, you can hear the laughter in the room. But on Zoom, everybody is muted while the person is talking. I could say the funniest thing in the world, and it's like crickets. Uh, you, you don't hear the laughter. Yeah, but interesting enough, what you do is you pick somebody that you know that's really listening and watch them yeah, yeah. laugh. 
Yeah. And you get that, okay, because I've spoke a couple of times. I don't like speaking on Zoom, mm -hmm. but I've done that, and I've found, I mean, like, you know, I mean, of course, you're, you're not muted, but you'll find somebody that really likes mm -hmm. what you're saying. Yeah. And watch them. When they laugh, you get that feeling. You well, know? you can see the nodding heads, and that's good. Right. And, yeah. and you can see people smiling and laughing and clapping and giving you thumbs up. That's always a good thing. In fact, I would give you two thumbs up for uh, what you've done for me today, and that is to enlighten me about your life and make a big difference in mine just by being you. One of the things you've really impressed me on is you always go around and say hi. And that's whether you know it or not, that impresses me. Thank you, Gordon. You're, you're a beautiful man, and I love you. And sure. you've been a part of my sobriety since the beginning. Thanks a million for being on AA Recovery Interviews. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to my guest, Gordon R., and to everyone who tuned in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast platforms. If you really liked it, I'd be grateful if you can leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>